As you take your seats, I invite you to turn your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, once again, we are going to read from verses 1 through 12. We are looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and as we have begun our study, part of what I have been trying to show you is this sermon is not just coming out of the blue, and the content that Jesus is communicating is he's not making it up new and fresh right there in the moment. This is the culmination of millennia of God's promises and his faithful fulfillments of those promises coming to a climax here in what Jesus is doing. And what we are looking at in this sermon, what Jesus is showing us is is what we need in order to have the moral formation of, 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 of our understanding of what virtue is needed to be changed. We need the imagination of our faith to be reoriented to virtue that you and I would not naturally pursue or gravitate towards or even want. And that the reason Jesus is reorienting our moral imagination is in order for us to truly enter into the experience of true Christian flourishing. And so as we come before uh, the word this morning, once again, let us give our reverent attention as Jesus speaks to us and as we look at uh, the Beatitudes in the big picture. The Beatitudes, the blessedness of being emptied in order to be filled. The Beatitudes, the blessedness of being emptied in order to be filled. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us afresh this morning through this sermon that our Savior spoke and yet is still speaking to us. Protect us from merely studying. Protect us from thinking that these are words from the past. But help us in the faith by which we cling to Jesus Christ to listen to him speak now. 
and to open up ourselves to being more and more vulnerable to our Savior. Even though what he communicates sounds dangerous to us, convince us, Lord, that this is the path to glory, that this is life hidden in Christ. We ask that you do this in us and through us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how do we find happiness? Last week, one of the things that we talked about is the reticence that Reformed Christians often have at even asking themselves the question, let alone asking themselves how that question is connected to God. We we tend to prefer a relationship with God that is based on duty, that is based on working to please Him, rather than remembering that in Christ He is already perfectly pleased with us. How do we find happiness? Part of what Jesus is doing here is is assuming that we want happiness. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones has put it this way, happiness is the great question that is confronting mankind. The whole world is longing for happiness and it is tragic to observe the ways in which people are seeking it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying to us, if you want to be happy, then here is the way. God designed us for happiness. When you look at the beginning of Scripture and the way that that creation unfolds and the descriptions of of how beautiful and sumptuous and and how bountiful the the Garden of Eden was and and the invitation of, of man and woman to live there in the beauty, in the bounty, in the goodness, in the truth of the Lord living in fellowship with Him and, and through his, the beauty of His creation, fellowshipping with Him and with one another, where, where through the enjoyment of the created delights that are described there, we would live in this, in this relationship that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has always enjoyed. Our triune God has always existed in the perfection of His own glory in the perfection of his own beauty in the perfection of his own goodness in the perfection of his truth and he does not exist within that eternal reality with a frown my son is so good he has existed in the perfections of his manifold glory in the enjoyment of who He is. And what the Scripture tells us is that when God created, He created to draw us into that. But we all know what happened. Despite God's grand design, there was this horrific rejection. 
Not a rejection of the pleasures of God, but the rejection of the God of those pleasures. What happened was in the, in the pride that man exercised in determining that either they or the serpent knew better than God, and in that hubris, what they chose was to embrace God's good gifts, but cut him out of the process, to cut him away from that fruit that was, that was pretty to the eye, that was, that was good for food, that would make one wise. What they decided was, I want all of that, but without God being part of it. And in the hubris and in the arrogance, they cut God out of his delights they cut god out so that as johnny lee has sung i've been looking for love in all the wrong places single bars and good time lovers were never true playing a fool's game hoping to win and telling those sweet lies yet losing again you see this is what sin does It corrupts the good. It corrupts the true. It corrupts the beautiful. So that God's design is still part of us. There is still this innate, inherent desire for truth, for goodness, for beauty. But our sin corrupts this design. It corrupts the desire. So we look for it in the wrong places. We look for it in the wrong way. But God has not left us to ourselves in saying, all right, well, you rejected me, so now you're stuck with the finite. Now you're stuck with the corruption. No, what he did was he put his son in place ready to secure for us what was lost. You see, it is part of God's desire. Yes, using the word desire with God. It is part of his desire that he have a people who are part of his namesake to live and to dwell and to enjoy him forever. Anything which merely makes people happy for the time being, is ultimately going to add to their misery and to their problems. That is where the utter deceitfulness of sin comes in. It always offers happiness, and it always leads to unhappiness. In the Sermon on the Mount, however, what Jesus is teaching us is that if you really want to be happy, here is where you find it. This is what flourishing people, this is what flourishing communities look like. And so there are two F words that I want you to associate with the Sermon on the Mount for the rest of your lives. And the first is fulfillment. What Jesus is doing here is fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, promises, expectations and desires now this is when you look at chapter uh, chapter 5 verse 17 that's where we enter this discussion where jesus starts using that that phrase you have heard it said but here's what i say i have come to fulfill the law now 
Jesus isn't waiting until verse 17 to hammer fulfillment. The, Matthew, the writer of this gospel, has been hammering fulfillment since chapter 1. Why is Jesus presented as the long-awaited king coming from the line of David? Well, because a king was promised, because a new and better king was needed. Adam had failed as the king. Israel had failed as God's people. David, who is put forward in the Old Testament as being the king of kings in Old Testament Israel, he was marked by failure. There was a need for a new king because the king was central to man enjoying God and flourishing as his people. Without the king, remember what we looked at when we looked uh, at Ruth back during Advent? Without the king, everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. And the result was chaos. The result was patterns of sin entrenched into individuals and into the community and into the kingdom itself. And the result of these patterns of sin was just this constant rejection and rebellion against God and His grace and His beauty and His truth and His goodness. There is this cycle of doing what is right in their own eyes and the result is chaos, immorality, idolatry, and the need to be sanctified not through the means of grace but through God's heavy hand. There's a need for a new and better king because the king that was promised in Deuteronomy 17 would be the king who was the embodiment of Torah. He would have a copy of Torah. And he would read that, and he would meditate on it, and he was supposed to live it, and he was supposed to embody it, and he was supposed to rule the people in light of it. And through that, he was to establish this kingdom that was an expression of God's Torah, God's law, God's wisdom. They needed a king. Jesus Christ is presented as the fulfillment of that promised king. There was, and by the way, the, this, the way that the king functions, it's not just something you find in Israel, but you find it in all the ancient Near Eastern religions. Where the king was seen to be the embodiment of wisdom, and the good king is what would lead to the good life for those who were under his rule. In Jesus Christ, that is what Matthew is presenting has come. He is the new and better king promised in Deuteronomy 17. We looked at he's the new and better king or the the new and better prophet that was promised in Deuteronomy 18. He is better than Moses. He doesn't just come and and serve God and 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 speak on behalf of God and but still mess things up like Moses did. No, Jesus is the son who has come, who is literally the embodiment of the Torah. He is the wisdom of God in flesh. And as he speaks, he speaks as the Son of God. 
who not only is able to take what he hears from his father and deliver it, but his life shows it. And there is no hint of failure anywhere. There is no hint of rejection. There is no hint of him questioning his father. He is the embodiment of the words that God wants us to hear and to live by. And this is who speaks to us in the sermon. And we noted that we are on a new exodus. The long-awaited exodus that was promised to the, to the, the people of God and the prophets as they had gone off into captivity into Babylon, they were promised that God was going to send this new king and this new prophet who would collect his people from the uttermost parts of the earth and bring them back together into the presence of God. As we read last week from Isaiah 2, and as you can read, almost an exact word-for-word passage in Micah 4, Jesus is the Messiah who ascends the mountain here in order to share the heavenly wisdom of God to his people whom he is leading in this new exodus. Only it's not an exodus out of bondage and slavery to Egypt. It's not bondage and slavery to politics. It's not bondage and slavery to your job. It's bondage and slavery to sin. He is the new and better king that was promised. He is the new and better prophet that was promised. He is leading us on the new and better exodus that was promised. And as he ascends this mountain in order to give God's word, he begins with this series of expressions that we call beatitudes. But make no mistake, What is meant here is the abundant life of John 10. This is where you find it. This is a a list of beatitudes because this is a list of descriptions of where one finds flourishing in this life. Flourishing while you are on the exodus, right? We have not entered into the fullness of the new heavens and the new earth yet. The new creation has begun in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we live as those participating in the realities of the new creation, but we still also are participating in the realities of the fallen, cursed world. We are in between Egypt and Canaan. And as we are sojourning and pilgriming along the way, what God tells us is even in the desert, there is still flourishing to be found when it is found with him according to what he says. This is the good life. Now the problem here is there's not a really good one word English gloss to capture This word that Jesus repeats over and over and over in these first 12 uh, verses. Uh, The English translations tend to go with blessed. And that's because, as I've said before, most English translations follow the lead of the King James. They, They chose blessed, so it's been blessed ever since. Every now and then you'll find someone who will, or a translation that will translate it as happy. 
When you read that, how does that, how does that hit you? Happy is the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn, right? When we read that, it, 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 it makes us clench a little bit. Whoa, blessed. Well, guess what the word means? It means happy. The Greek word here is makarios. It is a complex, beautiful, nuanced kind of word where there's not one single word that can really capture what is meant here. But, but what is intended here is this combination of happiness and wholeness. It is a mode or it is a state of existence, which is one reason they chose the word blessed. But blessed here, it doesn't mean that there is this active blessing of God that every time you meet this condition, then God says, okay, you get blessed. Instead, what's being described here is a mode of existence. If you want to live the good life and experiencing the flourish that God has for you, then this is what it's going to look like. Here, this is where you'll find it. It's not something you earn. It's not something that God gives on a tit-for-tat basis. You do this, and then this I do, and this is what I do. This is a mode of wisdom. Happy, blissful, fortunate, flourishing. These are all words that attempt to capture makarios. The reason we call these the Beatitudes, by the way, is it comes from the Latin beatus, which um, means happy, blissful, fortunate, flourishing. A beatus in Latin or a macarism in Greek were pronouncements, descriptions based on observation that there are better ways to live in order to experiencing to experience flourishing. And there are worse ways to live that take you further away from it, right? Or what the Bible often refers to as wisdom and folly. There is there are better ways to live in which you can experience more flourishing. There are worse ways to live when you experience more woe. The Old Testament context, though, for this word is is it points us to that wisdom that God reveals throughout the Old Testament, but very specifically in the wisdom books themselves. And we can find this, by the way, in Psalms 1 and 2. Psalms 1 and 2, which in some translations, by the way, Uh, There are some translations of Acts uh, where in Acts 17 it will refer to Psalm 2 as Psalm 1. And it's because uh, there's manuscript evidence that Psalms 1 and 2 used to be one psalm. They were to be connected. And even if you, who cares about the versification, right? We still connect them. And the totality of the Psalter is summarized in Psalms 1 and 2. And what does Psalms 1 and 2 tell us? There is a way to experience blessedness, and there's a way to experience woe. And in Psalm 1, woe is experienced when you live and walk and sit with scoffers, those who mock God and those who reject his word. 
But for those who embrace God through the wisdom that he has provided, there is a blessedness that is experienced there. And how is it described? It's a tree planted by a a, a river or a stream with roots going deep because the, the tree is blooming and is blossoming. It is full of fruit. It never withers. What does the the psalmist say? This is the man, this is the person that flourishes or prospers. Psalm 2, where is the blessedness found? It's found in kissing the cheek of of God's messianic king. It's living wisely under his rule, uh, embracing his words and his teaching and, and, and being devoted to him. The one who walks with God according to what he has revealed and, and lives devotedly under God's messianic king is the one who is blessed. He is the one that is Esher in Hebrew. Now, here's what's cool. Every single time in the 45 times where this Esher is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, every time Esher is translated into Greek, the word that is used is makarios, the word that Jesus uses here in the Sermon on the Mount. The fulfillment here, and we'll see this in more detail when we get into the specific beatitudes themselves. But the big point here is what is the fulfillment that is before us is not just the promised new and better king, not just the promised new and better prophet, not just the the promised new and better exodus. But here is the fulfillment of the wisdom that is needed. To live as one who is like a flourishing tree that never withers. The two main characteristics of Esher in the Hebrew or Makarios in the Greek is fearing the Lord and walking humbly in his way. Being devoted to him. Devoted to his teachings, devoted to his rule, devoted to his kingdom, devoted to his purposes. What you find in the Psalms and other wisdom literature is the promise of flourishing and happiness that is only experienced within the framework of faithfulness to the Lord. Jesus begins his public teaching ministry here in Matthew chapter 5. And he does so by painting a picture of what the state of true God-centered human flourishing looks like. And he makes his appeal by casting an inspiring vision in a way that builds on and fulfills the Old Testament promises and expectations. Do you want to be happy? Then here is the way. Here is what well-being in the kingdom of God looks like 
as we are on this new exodus. Here is the wise way of living in order to enjoy the bounty of God on this new exodus. Here is the virtuous life in which one can experience true happiness. Here is how you can experience what all of us were created for and were redeemed for, and if we're honest to ourselves, we long for. Right? Longing as if in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Those were your words in Psalm 63 this morning. In R.T. Francis' commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he titles this section, The Good Life, The Paradoxical Values of the Kingdom of Heaven. You see, he says that because, okay, if you buy in to, to what I'm saying, that, that God wants you to be happy and, and that God has given his promises in order to secure your happiness and that God has given you the king you need, the prophet you need, the exodus you need, if God is doing all this to secure for you the happiness that he has enjoyed within himself for all eternity, if that's really true, then okay, Let's, let's take this in. Tell me, how do I experience this happiness? Okay, well, the first thing you do, notice here, is what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, hold up. That doesn't sound like blessing. That doesn't sound very happy. I'm pretty sure, I may not be a Greek expert, but I'm pretty sure poor in spirit doesn't mean blissful and happy. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, that sounds very happy. Blessed are the meek. Ooh, I love meekness. Nothing like being taken advantage of in this world by being meek. That sounds very happy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. I can assure you that is not happy. I've worked really hard against that. You go through this list of these descriptions of where happiness is found, and you're like, hold up, Jesus. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm buying into this. And this is why, if we're going to embrace what God says in order to find what he wants for us, we have to acknowledge that the Beatitudes are counterintuitive to our way of perceiving flourishing, which is why God has to reform us. It doesn't make sense to us. It's a paradox. It's a puzzle. It's a mystery. Gospel flourishing or the kingdom of God, however, it doesn't offer the type of flourishing that you and I tend to think of. What the kingdom of God offers is gospel flourishing and gospel flourishing comes through the cross and resurrection of jesus christ and so the most basic idea here that is being revealed in every one of these beatitudes is this the heart of the beatitudes is that in christ's kingdom you have to be emptied before you can be filled you have to be empty before you can be filled. 
And that is because the pride of our first parents continues to be a pride and an arrogance and a hubris that you and I exercise on a daily basis. We want to define what is flourishing. We want to define where to find flourishing. And if you're honest, every one of us will define that in light of some form of enjoyment that I'm receiving from others. I challenge you to find one where you don't think of it that way. Either using God or using your neighbor. That's how you and I think in the fall, uh, as a result of that fallen nature that is still at work within us and the patterns of sin that you and I live in, where we live with, with this incessant self-focus, where we define everything in light of us, our experiences, our wants, our desires, what we feel like we don't have. And these become, beloved, so often this is the focus of our hearts in prayer, in worship, in fellowship, in service. So much of what you and I do is tainted by this self-focus, this self-centeredness. But what does the Apostle Paul encourage us towards from Philippians 2? This is not the way to live and experience life in Christ. We don't pursue our own desires over the desires of our neighbors. Like Christ, we empty ourselves in order to make others' concerns more important than our own. Look through the the, the language of Philippians 2 that we read from earlier as it calls us time after time after time after time. Give up this, give up this, give up this, give up this. And you and I, we do not like giving things up unless you and I get to decide what we give up. But beloved... If you're going to find happiness and experience the the Christian flourishing that God wants for you, even while you're on this new exodus, it is going to come as you empty yourself in order to be filled by God. The Beatitudes are counterintuitive. The Beatitudes are countercultural. These are completely different values than what you and I have heard growing up in this world. It's the poor that are blessed. It's the meek that inherit. It's mourners who have comfort. It's hungry and thirsty who are satisfied. These things don't make sense to us. They are counterintuitive to what the world tells you on a moment-by-moment basis when you're out there. You've got to live for you. You deserve a break today. See how old I am? At least half of this congregation's like, well, that sounds like a cool catchphrase. Where you came up with that? It's not mine. It was Burger King. Right? Was it Burger King or McDonald's? It was McDonald's. See, I don't remember what, what it was for. I just remember that I deserve a break today. Oh, oh, Burger King. I deserve to have it my way. Oh, well, look at that. Woo. Mm. Remember, we're Presbyterian. You're not supposed to talk right now. Do you see what it's saying? It's so easy 
And the catchphrases are so easy to remember because our souls like them. We like that kind of wisdom. I do deserve a break today. I do deserve to have it my way. Look how hard I work this way. I deserve to have the dishes done for me so that I don't have to do them today. I have to say that to Christy every day. That is not the problem in our household. But it's so easy to latch on to that. What do I want? What's wrong with wanting that? Well, then how do I get it? And the answer is always going to be the same thing. Use somebody. God does not tell us that we deserve a break today. What God tells us is that in Jesus Christ, I've made you alive, I've raised you up, and I've seated you in the heavenly places. And though you don't get to experience the fullness of that on a daily basis that fits your preferences and prejudices, guess what? One day you will. And until that day comes, I have you in the palm of my hand. And I have found a way for you to experience blessing of, of flourishing even now as you wait for the fullness to come. And that's by uniting you to my son. My son who has secured your exaltation through his humiliation. He has secured for you your glory. Because he experienced judgment and rejection. He has secured for you eternal life by suffering and dying. He has secured for you an eternal filling of the God who fills all in all. Because he was emptied. We love the Beatitudes, are, they're, they're counterintuitive, they're countercultural, and as a result, the more that we embody them, like Jesus, we will receive the negative assessment of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But Jesus says, even there, count that a, uh, a, a, a way of experiencing flourishing, because that's when you know that you are very connected to me. Beloved, Jesus had to trust his father. He didn't come down as the God-man and just kind of sashay through his ministry. He didn't receive a whole lot of accolades. He experienced suffering and rejection from the very beginning. What did Matthew say? Right after he's born, he has to flee to Egypt because the king wants to kill him. Life in the new exodus is often going to be experienced like Jesus in the wilderness, facing trial, facing testing, facing temptation. And yet the Jesus who overcame the world and the devil in those moments, he is the one who lives within you, empowering you as he remakes you into his image and as he animates you 
as one who can exercise his mind in loving and trusting his Father and in serving your neighbor. Jesus' kingdom is not marked by us fighting or attacking or retaliating in these moments. But like Jesus, we trust, we humble ourselves, and we rejoice in our Father. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is describing his own mode of blessedness as he lived within this life. As he became a servant to raise others to his fullness. As we participate in Jesus' life and trials, we too will connect to God in a way that we experience flourishing even on the pilgrimage to the fullness of the new heavens and the new earth. No, it doesn't make sense. Yes, it is puzzling and paradoxical, but that is the gospel. This is how God empties us of ourselves in order to fill us with himself. And so, beloved, as Jesus forms, yeah, I said beloved, that's the joke. Everyone knows this is the end. As Jesus forms our moral imaginations according to the values of his devotion to his Father, as he forms the moral imaginations of his disciples living in his kingdom, we uh, uh, experience the blessedness of Christ himself who leads us to embody him more and more consistently, which will facilitate us living with the kind of hope that those who have no hope but are looking for it because they have been designed to look for it, but because their sin has corrupted it and they are lost. We get to live with the kind of hope that our neighbor can see and give them a reason to ask us for our hope. So with gentleness and respect, not irony, not sarcasm, not making fun, with gentleness and respect, we give them Christ. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it in order to point it to the real thing. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life 
to press on to that other country and help others to do the same. Do you want to be happy? Then open yourself up to the vulnerability of trusting your heavenly Father who has given you everything in Christ that you may be emptied of yourself and filled with him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, there are too many horrific sources that are constantly attempting to train us and to disciple us. And Lord, there is a part of us that embraces it. We have to be honest. We do not perfectly resist the devil. We do not perfectly resist the world or the flesh. And so, Lord, help us to hear Jesus, not to examine him, not to figure out which parts we like and which, which parts we'll, we'll try, but that we would hear him as the giver of life, as the pathway of life itself, where he himself has accomplished this life by emptying himself in order to fill us. Lord, work within our hearts and within our consciences to to show us the places that we reject Christ. Show us the places where we would rather live as a Republican or live as a Democrat. Show us the places where we would rather live as a Southerner. Show us the places where we would rather live as one thing or another in in, in all of the different earthly designations and connections that we too often intuitively rely on. And instead, Lord, remind us that we are Christians. And that we are disciples of Jesus Christ, called and given the privilege of being disciple makers. As those who have been joined and united into the eternal union and communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, bathe us with yourself and use us for your glory. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.